morning again. Well, last week we started uh, in the book of 1 Peter. Uh, we're continuing, we're finishing chapter 1 today. Uh, we saw that, um, that Peter was writing to sojourners, to pilgrims, those who had been scattered uh, as Christians and they were facing some difficult times and they were going to face some more difficult times. And so uh, this book... Uh, this epistle letter was written and circulated to, um, to teach and to encourage uh, these Christians. Very much like we are, maybe we're not fa facing the same degree of trial or suffering, but we all face difficulties and trials in life and maybe they'll get worse, maybe not. Um, and so... He started off by encouraging them to look beyond today, beyond the existing trials, and to recognise that God had for them an eternal inheritance that was secure in the heavens. So he wanted them to look up and not down. And also he wanted to encourage them by telling them that not only had God secured an eternal inheritance for those who had been born into his family as children of God but also he was going to keep them and that's pretty good so it couldn't be lost and not only was he going to keep them he was going to prepare them and make them fit for that inheritance he's going to has something for us in the future and he's doing something inside us to get us ready for that and we saw then also that uh, the value of this um, blessing that God was giving us um, uh, was pictured, if you like, by the truth that even the angels wanted to look into the mystery of what God had done and how he had brought us out of darkness into his light. So we spent that time thinking about what our future and our hope is like, but we still have to live today. <laughs> and so he continues on in these, this last half of 1 Peter and actually the rest of the book uh, in thinking about, well, okay, you're facing these trials. You've got an eternal hope, but what now? Do we just sit down, <laughs> bunker up <laughs> and hope for the best? You know, the British stiff upper lip. <laughs> no, that wasn't going to be the case. So as part of God's preparing us and making us fit for the kingdom, making us fit to live in that place, because after all, it wouldn't be a great place if we were all like we are today, then certain things were going to need to happen. There was a certain process that was going to go on. The Bible calls it sanctification. It's God setting us apart and doing something in us. So even though when we ask Christ into our hearts and we're born again into his family, 
positionally, we're secure. We have that inheritance. He holds us in the palm of his hand and no one can pluck him out, pluck us out. Even though that's true positionally, we need to start to learn to live who we are. And we're still in this world of sin and we're still in this body with all its sinful inclinations. And so we're going to start to see, well, what do we do? What, how do we participate in the process that God is committed to in conforming us to the image of his son? So let's see how that starts off. There are just three things I want to focus on this morning from this passage, and there's so much in here. Um, we can't do it justice. But just three things. Verse 13 talks about a preparation, preparing our minds. So the first thing we need to do in getting ourselves fit for eternity is to do with our minds or our inner selves or our hearts, if you like. And then it's going to talk about two things. One is our holiness. So how are we going to live? The first thing relates to holiness and the second thing relates to love, holiness and love. So they're two hooks, if you like, for this chapter that may help you think about it. These are two characteristics, by the way, that are inherent in God himself. God is holy, as we see. He's pure. He's remote, if you like, remote from sin. And God is love. And this is one of the paradoxes of Christianity, the divine paradox, how you could have a holy God and a God of love. It's a beautiful thing. So, we've got to start somewhere, and the scripture starts not with the things that we do, but the things that we think about. Of the evil man, it says in Proverbs that as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. And it's true that the things that we immerse ourselves in, in terms of our thinking, things that we contemplate, things that we meditate on, these are the things that influence the way we live. The scripture's very plain. Jesus said it was out of the heart of man that came all the sins. Not, it's not the outward. This is totally at odds with today's worldview. Totally. Because the way we think today in our society is that all of our problems are to do with something else. It's either the family I was born in, it's the government we've got, it's my wife or husband, it's my children. It's, there's always an environmental thing, it's always external. And so, there's not an acknowledgement that something has to happen in the heart and in the mind. And because of that, because of that, there's a sense that as long as we fix everything up, as long as I have enough work and enough money and enough pleasure and enough relationships, then it all will work out. 
And not only that, I'll be a wonderful person. <laughs> but the reality is not so. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The reality is that we're fallen creatures. That we need Christ to do something in us. And part of that now we see in verse 13. Therefore, knowing all that God has prepared for us in those previous verses, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Romans 12.2 puts it this way. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Some have said that it doesn't say by the removing of your mind. (laughs) God still wants us to think. But it has to be the renewing of the mind. And it goes on to say that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In Philippians chapter 2, where it talks about humility and how we live uh, with with an attention to one another, it goes on to look at Christ and it says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, it's a different word, mind, But let this disposition be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Here it's saying to prepare your mind. Prepare the way you think. Preparing your mind and the way you think you are to be sober-minded and to set your hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed. So sober-minded. What do you think of when you think of sober? Well, I guess the first thing you think about is not drinking too much. But sober-minded is really being controlled, self-controlled. And it's interesting, I, ha- I read an interesting quotation, a de- definition if you like. It's not allowing the mind to wander to any mental intoxication and addiction. Now, let me ask you, what do you think about today when you think about mental intoxication and addiction? These little devices. <laughs> now, every age has had them, not, not mobile phones, but every age has had the distractions. The things that will intoxicate us and addict us in terms of our thinking What is it that I'm going to think about? What is it that my mind is going to focus on? And, you know, we we have a a whole entertainment industry to keep us from thinking. (laughs) In fact, the word amusement, we like amusement, don't we? The word amusement comes from a muse which is not to think. It's there to stop us thinking. Now, I'm not saying you should never have a break or you should never uh, be entertained in any way. 
But what I am saying is that it can become an addiction. It can become something that is intoxicating so that we can never put it down. It becomes a thing that consumes my life. And if it consumes my life, Christ is not consuming my life. And as I think, so I will be. So we make a choice. We make a choice every time we take this book. And it's not always easy. There are plenty of things to distract. We make a choice. What am I going to think about? Am I going to reflect and meditate on the scriptures? Or am I going to reflect and meditate on everything else? It's very real, friends. It's very real, the temptation and the intensity of it. We so naturally are more inclined to talk about the latest superhero quite often than about Christ himself. Now that's not a criticism. It's just something that the scripture warns us about. And the reason it tells us here that we should be preparing our minds is because our natural inclination will be not to do so. <laughs> if all our natural inclinations were to always focus on the thing we should focus on, then Peter wouldn't need to be writing these things. But he's writing it to these Christians because scattered as they are, there, there were going to be plenty of distractions for them. Aside from the trials, there were going to be plenty of distractions. And so he was going to, uh, they, they were to, to focus and set their minds and get ready for action. So, where do we go from there? Verse 14 tells us, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Holiness is a mark of God. It's a character of God. Um, it's, it's a very, very broad, <laughs> a rich word. It talks about God being separate from sin. You could almost say aloof. <laughs> he's unmixed, he's pure. And there's a negative sense, a negative uh, aspect of holiness which is true for the Christian today we're actually told to not do certain things we are not to be conformed we're told we're not to be conformed to this world 
In 1 John chapter 2, it tells us to love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So there's a distancing from those things. Not a distancing from the people. (laughs) Not being in the world doesn't mean not doing and participating with non-Christians. But it describes the world in those three ways. It says it's to do with the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes and the pride of life. It's to do with our desires, the things that we want that we shouldn't necessarily have, the lust of the eyes, the lust for riches, and wealth and the pride of life, our desire to be the greatest. Somebody said that once, didn't they? I'm the greatest. <laughs> so so that, that's how God's word encapsulates the world and it, it, it says we're not to be conformed to it. We're not to pattern our minds around it. That's the negative side. Yeah, it's really hard to live a life where you're just not doing things. <laughs> Have you ever tried that? Have you ever tried to stop a habit by not doing something? It's almost impossible. But God, God blesses us with the positive. It's not just about not doing something. It's also about doing something. It's conforming not conforming to the world, but conforming to the pattern of Jesus Christ. That's God's purpose. That's what he's doing in our lives. It says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So whilst we're not to be conformed to the world, what are we going to be conformed to? We'll be conformed to Jesus Christ. So that you could describe that as holiness. Holiness is really becoming like Christ in his purity and his character. It's actually not a very popular word today, is it? I guess if you spoke about being holy amongst uh, unbelievers, most of them would see it as maybe a negative thing. Not sure. And maybe we're losing a sense of, of its importance and value in Christian circles. I don't know. There was a generation ago there that used to be a lot of talk, maybe not so much practice, I don't know, but there used to be a lot of talk about holiness, about the importance of being separate from the world, as the scripture says, to be separate. Now I know being separate could sometimes be taken uh, as being separate from meeting and relating to the world, which is not what it's talking about. 
But nevertheless, there is a sense where there are certain things that we shouldn't be doing. There are certain places that we shouldn't be going. There are certain activities we shouldn't be participating in. There are certain books we shouldn't be reading. There are certain programs we shouldn't be watching. Now, I'm not here to tell you what all those are, but you see, the pattern is Jesus Christ. Are these things helping me conform to the world? Or are these things helping me to conform to the pattern of Jesus Christ? Why? Well, let's see why holiness matters so much. If we read in verse 17, and if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile or your sojourning, knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Why should holiness matter at all? Well, he said in, in the first part of chapter 1 that we've been born into a new family. Now, you imagine you're in an environment where you were born in a, uh, a very unpleasant home and family, things are not clean. Uh, there's a lot of uh, unpleasant talk, there's a lot of anger, a lot of bickering, a lot of fighting. And you are taken out of that and adopted into a new family. And in that family, there's loving relationships, things kept clean. I almost said tidy, but I might get told off for that. <laughs> Things, things are kept clean, right? The speech is gracious and fitting. You'd be the odd one out if something wasn't changing in your life, wouldn't you? And what this is really saying is that you call on him as father. You're in a new home now. Why should you be holy? Because our Father is holy. Why should you be holy? Because that's the home you live in now. Do you really love where you've come from? Do you really want to be there? Do you really want to live that way? Do you want to pursue the life and the things of which you are now ashamed? as it puts it in the scripture. So why should I be holy? Why should I make an effort to separate myself from that which is sin? Well, because my father is like that. And if I'm going to be the child of my father, then I'm going to want to be holy. But there's more to it than that. He's an impartial judge and he wants us to conduct ourselves with fear through the time of our sojourning. 
Now, there are two kinds of fear. You know, there's the kind of fear where fear of exams, no, maybe that's a bad one, You're cr a cringing fear. But you know, there's a fear of displeasing the one you love. And I think there's a sense here that we have a fear of displeasing our father. Now, don't get me wrong, he is the judge. He is our judge. But we fear because eternally our sin has been already judged. <laughs> We've been delivered. But we do fear displeasing our father. And we see that in children. You know, occasionally <laughs> they do something because they want to please mum and dad. Sometimes it's just they want to get something. But isn't it a blessing when you see that? See, And of course it does something in the child's life and it does something in our lives. When we have that sense of reverence for God so that it's not that I just want to separate myself from what is wrong. I do want to please my father. I don't want to incur his displeasure. That's why I should be holy. That's the motivation to be holy. But there's even, I think, even a greater motivation. And that's where we read that we were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it tells us this. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You have been bought with a price. Something happened at that transaction. When Christ bore in his own body our sin and paid for our sins, he redeemed us out of slavery and death and hopelessness. But he redeemed us for himself. And we've been bought with a price. And it says we do not belong to ourselves. You will be enslaved to someone something it's just who you want to be slaves to you're either going to be enslaved to your own passions and lusts that lead to despair and death or maybe enslaved to some person whom I'm seeking desperately to please or some person's to gain their accolades. I may remain a slave of Satan himself or I may, by the grace of God, become a child of his and become a slave and a servant to God. Now, we don't like the word slave. I understand that because generally... The thing about slavery 
is, is the fear that the master <laughs> might do things that are not good to us. But being enslaved to God as a loving father is a different proposition altogether. Because everything that is for our good, he knows and understands. And it says he works all things together for our good. Isn't it good that God is committed to certain things? God promises certain things. He makes certain committed commitments. And he's committed himself to work all things together for good. To those who love him, to those who are his children. He's committed himself to do that. And he's bought us. He's paid for us. So why should I be holy? Well, my father is holy. I should fear his displeasure, but also I don't belong to myself. How does it happen? It doesn't happen this way. I'm going to grip my teeth now and I'm going to do the right thing for the rest of my days. I'm not saying you shouldn't be determined to do what is right and pure and proper. We should prepare our minds. That should be the inclination of our thinking, Lord, this is what I want to be. As one person prayed, make me as holy as a saved sinner can be. We should be. But then, on the other hand, we recognise how absolutely hopeless and helpless we are and how absolutely impossible it is for a sinner to live a holy life. And so it's never going to happen unless we submit to the Lord as the one who's going to work the change in us. Verse 22 says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, We purified our souls. The obedience to the truth involves a submission to he who is the truth. And it's he is the one who works in us that which is pleasing in his sight. All right, we'll move on, verse 22 to 25. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. 
you prepare your mind. We start to think about the things that are lovely and good. We start to think about God himself. We take time in the scriptures. We take time to pray. And God starts to influence our thinking. Then we take steps to separate ourselves. In our thinking, we ask God to work in us the very thing that's pleasing in his life to make us holy in our behaviour. And then this leads on to this other half, not really half, other part of the character of God and that is his love. So how as pilgrims, as these exiles were they to live, what were they going to do in getting prepared for their inheritance? Not only were they going to live holy lives, not only were they going to grow in this grace of holiness, but they were going to grow in love. See, it says in verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. What's significant about love? What if you had just holiness, purity, righteousness, but no love? You can't have love, by the way, without the purity and the righteousness and the holiness. That wouldn't even be love. But without love, the purity and the righteousness and holiness of God is a fearful thing. To face the judgment and the wrath to come is a fearful thing. We know we've sinned against God. We know we're guilty. God's justice does not require him to show mercy. He could rightly condemn each of us and we're each deserving of condemnation. And if you don't believe that, then you haven't come to a place of recognition of your position before God and you'll never come into his family as a child of God. That's how we come. But not only is God righteous and holy and just, he's a God of love. He's a God who is merciful. He's a God who is kind. In heaven the thing that's going to bring about that spontaneous worship of God and the Lamb 
is what he's done for us. It's the love of God toward us. Love isn't just one thing in the Christian life. Love is the greatest thing. It says, above all things, have fervent love one to another. Above all things, above all things, have fervent love one for another. <laughs> it's the supreme thing. 1 Corinthians 13, which is you know, the manual on love, it says that regardless of how eloquent I am, how well I speak, regardless of how much I give, regardless of how much I sacrifice, without love, it's nothing. It's of no value. It's worthless. It's not saying it's of some value. It, it's saying it's worthless. What do we want to be known for in City Reach Marion? A church that's outreaching or evangelistic? Good worship services? Great preaching? A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And what does it say? By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. John 13, 34 and 35. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. You Christians are scattered around. You're facing trials, you're going to face more trials. How then should you live? You need to live distinctly. You need to live with holy and separate lives. Lives that are attractive in the beauty of their purity, in their goodness. But you need to live lives that love. The thing that needs to distinguish you from everybody else, all the other political parties, all the other groups, all the other organisations, the thing that has to distinguish us is this one thing. By this shall all men know you are my disciples if ye have love one toward another. God so loved the world that he gave. And if God so loved us, what does it say? We ought also to love another, one another. There's a, this last part of, of this chapter where it talks about being born again by the, not the imperishable, but the imperishable seed, the word of God, it almost seems like a strange thing to put at this point in the chapter. But I think what it's saying here is that the word of God is eternal. And the thing that it proclaims is eternal. It's not perishable. 
It doesn't pass away. And this is eternal, unchanging and true. And its declaration is one of love. The love of God for us and what our love should be for one another. So it's putting, it's putting love in the context of the unfailing and uh, the authoritative word of God. And so you see, love is not something um, that is good for a time and then there's something else. We love our fads and fashions. It's not like that. Everything else may change, but this has to be a constant. A holiness needs to be a constant, and especially love needs to be a constant. I want to finish off by just thinking very briefly on what does it look like? What does it mean for us to love one another? Now, there are a lot of TV programs that talk about love, <laughs> which are very misleading. We could spend a long time thinking about how we love one another. But let me just say, every time we see someone here who from the heart serves another or gives themselves to another, in whatever way, even if it's a glass of water, is enacting love. Because that's what it is. Love in its essence is God giving. God giving his son. That's love in its essence. Love in its essence with us is us giving us sacrifice. That's why it's so nonsensical when people talk about in a marriage relationship, I no longer love the person. That's nonsense. It's not about no longer loving them. If I love someone, I'm not thinking about how I feel, I'm thinking about the other person. It in, inherently, it's outward. Inherently, it's outward. And let me say, friends, it's not possible without the love of God in us. Because our natural inclination is not to think about someone else. Our natural inclination is to think about who? <laughs> me. That's my natural inclination. And so... When I look at 1 Corinthians 13 and see the, the spectrum of love, the characteristics, it's all about the other. And let me finish in Philippians chapter 2. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others, it says. And how would we do that? We let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let this disposition be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and was made in the likeness of men. 
And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. Wherefore God also has highly exalted him. It's really simple. You love today when you willingly do something for someone else. Because you want their good. You desire their good. And we, we need to practice it. We need to practice it. And I see it happening in the church. And I see many of you that do that. Give of themselves. But one final little warning. As soon as I start to think, therefore, I'm owed something in return, then I've lost it. Lord, help me. Help me give of myself for another simply because I desire their good. And only God can do that in our hearts. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, um, we're thankful for your book. Uh, we're so thankful that you're working in us these things because we can't work them ourselves. We're so thankful, Lord, that our hope rests on you and we pray, we pray that you'd continue amongst each person here, speaking to our hearts, making us more holy, teaching the steps to take, but also making us loving in terms of looking out for the needs and concerns of others in a way that pleases and blesses you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Peter.